Welcome to Evolved Radio, where we explore the evolution of business and technology. My guest today is Christopher Calvert, who is an information and internet security professional with a deep, deep experience protecting very large-scale infrastructures for some of the largest companies in Canada. Chris has a depth of knowledge around this space that I find really fascinating and wanted to talk to him about some interesting events that we've been seeing in this space recently. Today we talked about the evolution of the cybersecurity industry as well as state-sponsored cyber attacks and the rise of the IoT botnets. Chris has a unique perspective on the development of the space and I really hope you enjoy the conversation. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Also, be sure to check out the webpage evolvedmgmt.com slash podcast for show notes, links to my guests, and to check out previous episodes. Now let's get started. Today we have joining us Christopher Calvert, information and security expert uh, with professional experience of 15 years. So welcome, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. So if you would, maybe just start on a quick background, one or two minutes on your journey to where you uh, have come from and how you got to where you are in a pretty high level in the security industry. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I mean, like a, like a lot of people have been doing security for some time, uh, I didn't really have an orthodox path. Uh, times have changed quite a bit. But really when I started in on I was driven by, by interest and passion as opposed to well, uh, we'll say formal professional training or anything of that nature. Um, really, I came in from uh, you know an internet operations and system administration background, primarily Unix systems, and that gave me quite a bit of insight into what was going on in the industry in terms of dealing with this emerging thing called security and uh, abuse of different communication services. And uh, from there, I, I chose to focus my career on that. Uh, just, you know, 15 years ago, and took the took the step from sysadmin to security professional and uh you know from there I've, I've touched a fair bit of different topics within information security but mostly focusing uh at least within the last let's say seven years on what most people would consider to be offensive security which is kind of the uh, the aggressive finding and proving out of flaws in systems would most people sort of understand that as black hat security in, in or is that not necessarily the correct term for that uh, that's a that's a great question. So there's a there's a lot of debate on terminology, and I wouldn't say there always has been, but it's definitely been there for the last uh, last several years. Um, you know, the terms like like hacker versus cracker and things like that used to be pretty well defined uh, a long time ago, but uh, you know, popular media, news, things like that have really blurred the lines between things like a hacker and a cracker. And when you start to get into a hat color. Um, you know, black hat usually denotes somebody who is you know, malicious or criminal in nature or, or something along that lines, whereas a, a white hat hacker would be somebody who exclusively uh, does their work for, for good. Uh, and a gray hat kind of blurs the lines, as you might expect. So, uh, you know, I, I've definitely been uh, on the, let's say, the, the paler end of that spectrum. Um, a lot of the skills are the same, though, which is why sometimes it's it's a bit difficult to, to tell the difference. Um, tactics and techniques might be the same, uh, and often somebody who is trying to do security for uh, for good, so to speak, is going to use uh, some of the same tools and some of the same same techniques as uh, as a quote unquote bad guy might. 
Yeah, it's sort of a, an interesting interplay between the two that uh, in order to know the mind of a criminal and, depend, and defend against it, you kind of have to get into that world as well, right? Yeah, and, and not to not to get, you know, morally relativistic or anything like that. Um, you, you do definitely need to understand the mind of the adversary. And, and really when we're talking about offensive security and understanding uh, you know the adversary. We, we we use those terms. We use the term adversary. Uh, you know, we use the term threat actor. Those are really non-judgmental terms, and I think it's it's important to understand that. Um, you know, the, life is full of conflict. Uh, business is full of conflict. Uh, it's not necessarily malicious or, or mean-natured, but um, you know, you end up in various various aspects of life just pitted against adversaries and. Uh, you know, you need to understand those adversaries if you're going to be able to to win the game, so to speak. Yeah, it's something that I find fascinating about security in the modern age is that it used to be, uh, I've described this before, that it was more about notoriety, that, you know, people just wanted to, it was like like uh, like tagging, like um, uh, graffiti in the past. You know, if you could get uh, your logo and your banner running across someone's, someone's machine or across their website, that was enough. And now it's a criminal enterprise. And it's, uh, so there's, there has been sort of this continuum of how, uh, the the security industry has developed. How would you see kind of that evolution of the security indus- industry since you've seen it? As you said, you know it was it was more of an emerging field when you first got into this, and you've you've kind of been along for the ride. What's been your view on that evolution over the time? When I started doing this stuff, really, it was all about, uh, for lack of a better term, abuse management uh, at ISP. So it's somebody offering sort of some sort of internet connection would have to deal with. Uh, with abuse of service. And, and bear in mind, abuse of service is defined by the service provider, not necessarily defined, designed uh, or defined historically by law. Uh, that That's something that's emerged much more slowly. But uh, service provider really defines what's acceptable on the service, what isn't, and uh, they need a way to manage it. And, uh, you know, some, some have had more success than others. And, uh, you know, reputations get earned based on that success or lack thereof. Um, you know, and when, so when I started, really, you're dealing with the proverbial, uh, you know, 12-year-old hacker in the basement that is poking around and scanning NASA and getting caught doing things like that and uh, earning attention from <laughs> some very powerful folks, uh, you know, without necessarily having a, an overtly malicious intent or, or criminal intent. Uh, but definitely doing something that their their targets didn't appreciate, and like you've like you've intimated, that's really changed. Uh, there's money attached to it. There's a lot of money attached to it, and uh, now there's there's very very organized, very capable uh, criminal organizations that are involved in uh, you know in in hacking, so to speak. There's uh, you know there's nation state level stuff. It's it's moved into the the realm of. Um, espionage and uh you know tradecraft national security and national defense even offense against uh an adversary so it's it's really spanned that uh that journey from completely unprofessional uh amateurish uh you know just poking around closer to the traditional definition of hacking um right up to to full-on nation state activity with full geopolitical implications 
Yeah, that's when one of the parts I found fascinating, certainly in the past year or so, that what used to be uh, very discreet espionage, and you know, you can assume that a lot of the stuff was going on for years in the background, but it almost seems like that a lot of the planning and and sort of the preparatory uh, 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 work that the states are doing around launching cyber attacks and defending against cyber attacks is somehow public. Uh, is that saber rattling, or is it just that you know we're in in an information age and it's more difficult to protect, or you know what, what's the interest or or the the progression from this stuff being done under covers and, and discreet to now being more in the public eye? Awareness is key. Uh, I think you you really hit the nail on the head right off the bat. Uh, it's it's coming into the public eye. It's not that this kind of thing hasn't happened before, and uh, you know if you watch you watch James Bond movies from the point at which James Bond movies were being made. Uh, you know, there was really no such thing as a personal computer then. Literally, there was no such thing as a personal computer then. Um, and you see, you see spies, and you see tradecraft. You see human adversaries pitted against each other. Um, and as those as those movies, as that movie franchise went on, you see, uh, you see an arms race in technology. You see almost even the same story told again and again, and in some cases, literally with Casino Royale, you see the same story told again, but modernized with, with new technology, uh, which means new tradecraft, right? New skills are necessary. A new baseline of technical expertise. Uh, you know, is, is required in order to achieve the objectives in, in some sort of conflict like that. So I, le- I, I tend to think of things in those terms, in terms of, of adversaries, in terms of conflict, uh, in terms of move and counter move. Um, the, the security profession has had to go along the, the journey as well in understanding the level of maturity involved in those conflicts. And now we need to understand, at least at a very basic level, some of the concepts of the game theory and, and things like that. Whereas before, you maybe come out of a, a system in background like I did, and uh, you might have to understand a little bit of information theory or things like that. And it's really more a matter of, of engineering and computer science. And now there's game theory and chaos theory and all these really awesome esoteric things that uh, theoretical mathematicians and physicists tend to really do well at. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, and, and then of course there's, there's the emergence of geopolitical motivations, right? So you start to get into a bit of uh, a bit of history and uh, things like that. It's, it's become very, very nuanced. So that, that's um, the one that we've seen fairly recently was there was there was quite a bit of public attention drawn towards the U.S. and Russia kind of posturing, uh, certainly through the course of, of the, the U.S. election. And there was there were kind of these rumors uh, around the U.S. and Russia prepping kind of a cyber cold war where uh, and that's why I kind of alluded to that saber rattling. You know, they're saying, you know, we have plans. We could launch a cyber war against uh, Russia or the U.S. and uh, uh, just to, to sort of state that they're prepared and ready if, if anyone wants to make the first move. Uh, and there's even rumors that, that uh, Russia was making an active effort to tamper with, if not at least the, psycholo- the psych- uh, psychology of the U.S. electorate, if not you know, the systems. Um, any thoughts on, on sort of that, though, either for, at the, sort of the, the state uh, pissing match, for lack of a better description, or <laughs> the, uh, uh, the influencing the election and, and whether or not we'll continue to see actions like that from states? I uh, so I guess first off, um, that's not even remotely new. 
it's just we're seeing a different aspect of it with with the the technology so so the the types of conflicts uh, that we've seen for decades uh, and and I'm sure longer um, they're just being expressed in in constantly evolving ways and uh, the technologies at play force the the ways that it is expressed to evolve it really the adversaries don't have a choice right so you need to you need to wage the the conflict on the the battlefield that you're presented with and that battlefield includes all these information networks and telecommunication systems and uh, you know just a, a very set of complex systems that require it to be uh, for lack of a better term more and more of a, a cyber conflict um, there's a lot of controversy over the term cyber I would say more than you have with hacker versus cracker for back in the day um, a lot of a lot of information security professionals really bristle at the, the use of the term cyber um, and uh, it, you know the thing that I think it's important to realize is that it it does have meaning. It has meaning not within the last three years, but in the last several years as a emerging area of, uh, of military doctrine. Uh, it's one that, that nation states are really, really struggling to understand, understand the context of, uh, we'll say, effective conflict and uh, even international law. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely not something that is, is new, but again, awareness. So the, the saber-rattling saber constant. Uh, I mean, even, even the term harkens back to the old days when there were physically sabers being rattled. Um, I don't want to accidentally coin a term, but yeah, there's a lot of cyber-rattling now. It's <laughs> there we go. It's out there. No, stop. Delete, yeah, delete. Yeah. Um, one of the things, Chris, that I've noticed, uh, you know, I led a, a security group in the past, and it was sort of one of my first real introductions to what happens under the covers and, and deeply understanding what's at stake and what's being protected and generally the level of risk. And, and I have to say, it did make me a little more paranoid for a period of time. Uh, you work at a pretty high level at, at this work. Does it make you paranoid or fearful for sort of the implications of, of sort of the larger, uh, more uh, uh, state act, uh, actor attacks and the implications that that could have for kind of modern life? Do, how do you get past that worry? Yeah, I'm going to do something else, which I think I'm going to regret. Uh, so as the as the, the, the great sage uh, Kurt Cobain once said, just because you're paranoid uh, don't mean they're not after you. Um, and uh, so I, I, don't, I don't like to consider it paranoia. Certainly the non-security people, uh, most security people, if not all of them, appear to be paranoid. Um, they're super paranoid. Um, but uh, I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it's something that happens with awareness. And I think the, the baseline level of Let's say concern or, or even anxiety amongst the, the general population, uh, you know, at least those that, that read and, and watch the news, um, they, they're getting more and more concerned, more and more anxious, more and more paranoid. Um, I think the difference between paranoia and the difference between, uh, we'll say, justified concern is, is really bridged by accuracy. Um, as, as a professional in this space and, and doing this for some time, I think I've got a, uh, a very accurate and very objective uh, view of, of the world and of the, the technologies and the conflicts in play. 
so I wouldn't say I'm paranoid. No, I would say that uh, I see threats that the vast majority of people don't see. Uh, but that's true, I think, of, of any professional that has, uh, has a view into a world that, that just most people don't. Lawyers understand the implications of, of various things, uh, law and, and uh, extra legal, quite you know quite well and in a different way that non-lawyers do. Um, you know, people with a really robust business background or finance background understand the implications of some of the things that go on in in uh, the economy uh, much better. Uh, you know, historians understand the the long-term implications of the past and see patterns repeating that the vast majority of people simply don't see. And I think I think that's sort of what I'm alluding to is that, uh, you know, you understand probably better than most or the the uh, sort of the level of uh, practicality around, you know, a full scale uh, uh, digital war. We'll move away from cyber, if you like, <laughs> but a you know a digital attack that could potentially cripple, say, a power grid, and you know that the and the level of implication on that, you know, putting millions of people in the dark for days and potentially weeks on end could have uh, seriously crippling effects to society and the economy and things like that. Uh, the, uh, you know, is that just sort of the state of the world? And you know, it's like policing. You know that there's bad people out there, but you have to hope. That that and trust that people are also working just as diligently to protect you, and I, I also feel like this is a maybe a bit of um, sort of the mad, the mutually assured destruction methodology from from you know borrowing again from the Cold War, that no one has a good interest in launching one of these because there's a self detriment that's built into attacking any other t- economy on a digital scale. Is that maybe where some of the comfort is is baked in as well? Um, I think that. I think that we we need to take a bit of a different assumption, rather that uh, these sorts of attacks, this sort of constant conflict, uh, is happening, has been happening for longer than we've been aware of it, uh, will continue to happen, uh, and and isn't maybe the doomsday scenario that that some people uh, fear it is, or maybe have a vested interest in portraying it as. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of conflict in the world. That's that's not news. Um, I think what what is interesting and what not a lot of people know is that uh, targeting communications uh, and the the integrity and confidentiality of communications has been a concern for for a very long time. Uh, I mean, encryption is is not new. Um, if we even go back to the, the last huge conflicts of the previous century, uh, I think some would argue that the battle was won for the Allies uh, because of the ability to break uh, access crypto systems. Uh, and that happened on, on really you know, both Atlantic and Pacific uh, sort of spheres. Um, you know, the, all the stuff about uh, you know, breaking the Enigma machine and, and cracking, uh, you know, Japanese communications and then taking advantage of it. Uh, you get into the kind of the realm of, uh, of intelligence and counterintelligence. Uh, you know, once you've cracked, cracked a, a crypto system, you can start perhaps injecting false information in uh, and watching for the moves of your adversaries uh, or perhaps leading them 
towards specific moves that play out in your favor. And that, that's exactly what happened in the Pacific. Um, you know, the other thing, and, and, you know, cycle back a little bit to the idea of awareness, just looking at, at a book here from my bookshelf. So if you want to get an idea of how long the debate has been going on about cyber warfare, I'm looking at a book right now called Strategic Warfare in Cyberspace, written by uh, Gregory J. Ratray. And uh, really this book is an attempt to understand how uh, how cyberspace, cyberspace plays a role in strategic warfare. So let's let's play a little game, and hopefully you haven't already cheated. What uh, what year do you think this was published in? Actually, wait, maybe I've got it wrong. I'm going to Go say... Ahead. Um, 88? 2001. Okay. <laughs> I tried to go way back. <laughs> you did, you did. Yeah, but still, so that's, that's it's quite old in terms of, in terms of the, the, the topic area. It's quite, quite old. Um, you know, and again, it's not, this isn't, the, the, the thinking around this, the, the struggle with understanding what this all means to society and to, uh, you know, to civilization, it's not new. Um, you know, I've got another book here, Cyber Deterrence and Cyber War, which kind of touches on your, your mutually assured destruction comment. Uh, you know, 2009, published by the Rand Corporation. Um, it, there's been it's a, a constant struggle to really understand this, but, uh, you know, I'd argue that the same thing happened with, with previous transformational technologies like gunpowder. Um, you know, Japan is, is another example where the really Japan was forced into the modern world uh, by uh, you know the Europeans coming and bringing firearms uh, and firearms it turns out do quite a good job against uh, mounted sword and bow wielding wielding samurai and it, it changed warfare in Japan and Japan had to modernize very quickly and I think now we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing a number of different states having to modernize very quickly in terms of uh, you know information technologies and conflict in that that context yeah it's interesting like as you were talking about that it kind of gave me a sense that uh manipulation may be more the game than it is destruction like the like i said that no one has a vested interest or everyone has a vested interest in the progression of society as a whole and they don't necessarily want to tear down something or or decimate another country or another society but being able to manipulate them and influencing them in a direction that they prefer is a far more powerful tool than destruction yeah, it can be. Depends on your objectives, right? So, if your objective is to is to knock out communications for a short period of time, then what you do will will be uh, will be designed to achieve that objective. Um, you know, I think very rarely do you want to completely destroy uh, a target system, target environment, target nation, uh, but knocking out power or communications or any other critical infrastructure for a short period of time could work quite well. I mean, look at the havoc wrought during the ice storms in uh, in eastern Canada some time ago. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that that was, you know, a, a cyber event or a cyber event was related to the other po- major power outages that took place in both eastern Canada and eastern U.S. But that ice storm was was a natural occurrence, and you know, so we have we have a few instances where we see nature uh, kind of imposing effects like that. Um, if you look at various armed conflicts over the last, I don't know, a few decades, um, I think quite a few of those were, 
were preceded by by quote unquote cyber uh, you know, cyber attacks. Um, my my understanding, and I'm, I'm not and I'm not an expert in uh, in warfare or, or history, though. But uh, my understanding is that before the airstrikes in Kosovo, uh, NATO used attacks against communication systems to make their targets less less capable of communicating and responding. Um, I think it's also quite well known that before uh, before Russia invaded Georgia, more recently, uh, they uh, they used cyber conflict, and then the same uh, same is true for Ukraine, as I understand it. Uh, and there's there's some evidence and some public research and reports that have been released and a number of different uh, you know publicly available uh, pieces of information that that can help you kind of get to that conclusion. Um, you know, so you know, d- does it play a role? And is it a is it a massive society destroying kind of threat? Uh, no, I think it's just another way that technology is used in what is ultimately human conflict. And the most important thing, in, in my opinion, is to understand, try to understand your adversaries, understand what their objectives are, understand how they go about achieving those objectives, and then you can get to a closer closer capability of anticipating what they're going to do right so we've kind of taken our our history lesson on uh what we've learned and what that potentially means for our present uh one of the things that that i'm concerned in the future because uh, i uh, i keep sort of tabs on this i'm certainly not a security expert although i find the the industry fascinating like to keep up on it but uh i've been talking to a number of people about the the concern over the rise of the uh iot botnets which is for people that don't know is the internet of things which is essentially uh you know everything with a microchip potentially has an ip address in the future and you bring it home you attach it to your wi-fi and you don't really have a lot of control over uh the security and safety and the people that are producing this stuff are it's generally kind of uh, junk electronics and there's there's not a lot of security built into them and a great example of this in october there was a huge ddos attack on uh an a dns provider that took down uh, some fairly significant sites on the internet twitter was affected netflix was affected uh, a lot of companies that have suffered a lot from this um I, i'm curious uh, your your uh, uh, sort of deeper insights on what are what are the implications of the rise of the iot and uh, it sort of lacks security because of its ease of entry into the internet stop biting my tongue um <laughs> iot security is a big problem um <laughs> i i don't i don't really understand why why we as a species insist on repeating the same mistakes over and over again even within the same lifespan of of those who made the previous iteration of those mistakes iot is uh, rife with those repeated mistakes in my opinion uh i'm certainly not alone uh that said i think what we what we have learned uh, allows us to hopefully correct those mistakes much earlier in the process. And, and you know what? I'm seeing signs of that. So, uh, you know, I see signs out of governments. I see signs out of the, the industry. Uh, and I'm using that in a very, very broad sense. Um, there are always going to be, uh, there's always going to be organizations that put together devices, put together technologies, write code, and so forth that 
try to try to get get features developed and ship it as quickly as possible and and just don't think even remotely about the future or about their responsibilities as as they do that and uh you know fulfilling all those responsibilities takes time takes you know it's costly it takes all sorts of different different uh drains on your resources to accomplish effectively um and I think what we'll probably end up seeing is very strong public and private sector pressure on organizations like that globally um, to uh, correct those mistakes very rapidly if the, there's evidence that they have. Uh, and the, uh, the DNS provider uh, denial of service that you referenced has triggered that kind of action. Uh, but even before that, we saw the debut of that capability against uh, against a very well-known security blog, uh, you know, some Brian Krebs, Krebs blog. Yeah. yeah, it was it was uh, blasted off the face of the internet with the largest denial of service ever recorded, uh, which was then uh, the second largest denial of service ever recorded after the DNS provider was hit a short time later. So when that attack took place, really, I think a lot of people were left wondering, it's like, why, why on earth would you expose that kind of capability against a blog uh, and not not to downplay uh mr krebs influence because he's i mean he's a he's a hero with the internet I, security community. i agree to some degree uh, i was I, I suggested i was surprised it took that long because he was such a, a public target right he was he he was had an inside scoop on on so many of the attacks beforehand so he he gets hit constantly let's just make sure that that's he gets hit constantly, and I think it's been covered quite a bit on his his blog. So it's not it's not the first time he's been targeted, but this was the this was the debut of a massive massive capability. Uh, and so, if you ask yourself, well, why would you why would you burn why would you play that card on a target like that just to get what appears to be revenge for some reporting that landed some you know. Huh, Back to your earlier comment, black hats in jail. Right. Um, so the answer is, they didn't burn any capability. It was just a debut. They're saying we can do this, we can do this at a whim, and it's easy, and it's easy because of IoT. It turns out. So uh, all of those devices out there that have been shipped without any sort of sensible lifecycle management, without any sort of patching capability, without you know proper thought towards maintaining the thing over its lifecycle. They've created that capability. Um, in the case of the DNS provider attack, it was I think mostly uh, IP connected security cameras, uh, cheap IP connected security cameras, uh, and the vendor responsible for that I, I think has been uh, at least partially convinced of the error of their ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean this is it's the new reality. So we're going to see denial of service attacks like that. We're gonna we're gonna hit. Uh, we're going to hit a terabyte at some point and sooner than I think we hope. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's very destructive, but ultimately, um, when you take out communication systems, entire communication systems, you are also taking out the revenue stream of, I will say, some very powerful uh, criminal organizations. Uh, you're also interfering with uh, critical infrastructure, which means... Uh, nation states, which means national security, and so on and so forth, uh, that that can have extremely serious repercussions, uh, and, and probably the, the, the criminal side of it may be the most scary. 
because I mean, some of these groups they they don't mess around. They're they're playing in the digital realm because it's kind of easy money. <laughs> but uh, these are serious yeah. folks. Yeah, and it, uh, to me, it's sort of a good analogy that I would think of is that it's a bit like a biological response, right? That you know, the all of a sudden there's a super virus, and not in the the digital sense that you traditionally think of a virus, but a virus that attacks the ecosystem of uh, sort of the digital. Uh, uh, communications infrastructure, and now everyone sort of recognizes, wow, this is this is different than what we've dealt with before, and now we're forced to innovate and to develop a better security infrastructure that can defend against these types of attacks that are developing, and hopefully set a precedent to put more weight and research into developing uh, against future attacks. So in a way, it's kind of like this this uh, stimulus and response mechanism for the 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 ecosystem and health of the internet. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think the other aspect of that is that um, when you're you're choosing defenses for your your organization or your uh, your information assets or, or what have you, you're you're really supposed to be designing those defenses against your your adversaries, your known or suspected adversaries. Let's say, um, for in the, the Krebs, exa- Krebs example. Um, you know his his new hosting arrangement is probably uh, not going to fall to such an attack. <laughs> uh, so it's not that 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 kind of service didn't exist before. It's just that he wasn't on it because he didn't think it was that much of a problem, and uh, things changed. Uh, you know, if we look at at home security, uh, you know, often the you know the the firewall device that's handed to you by an ISP may be enough, and the the free antivirus that comes with your operating system uh, can be enough. Sometimes you think that the complete lack of antivirus on your operating system is good enough, but uh, you know whether or not that's the case. Um, I think if you went to an enterprise security environment and you said, "Oh no, uh, you know what the the little modem with the little NAT gateway and you know this free AV or not AV or whatever, who cares?" That's good enough. That's that's not really going to fly. It's not going to fly at small organizations. It certainly doesn't fly at larger ones. So the the defense has to be tailored towards the threat, uh, and the threat comes from a threat actor, which is a really a human or a bunch of humans on the other side, and it's all about the human conflict. Yeah, this is uh, an interesting area that I'm seeing a lot of growth in. So I work with uh, uh, with uh, managed service providers and IT service providers, and one of the emerging markets that everyone's starting to to really start to focus on is the security management for businesses, uh, because there's a, a certain level of awareness in that public. Uh, thought process of of how uh, critical this is and how at risk people are, um, and, and I, I think you're right. You know that that's one of the conversations that those folks have a lot is, well, I can go to Best Buy and buy you know this eighty dollar router that connects me to the internet, and you're trying to sell me one that's three hundred dollars. And there's a good reason why those are there's a price gap between those. But you know people people really struggle with with uh, an awareness around that. But there's there's certainly a developing market around. Around that security management, and uh, I'm interested in kind of your thoughts on, you know, the enterprise is aware of this, but you know, you, I, I trust you're seeing an awareness and a development in the small to medium market where they are getting on top of this, and there's probably a, a significant business opportunity to to help people to remediate this and and move them to a more secure future. 
yeah, I think at the I think at consumer level, a lot of people who are spending uh, you know two to three hundred dollars on some sort of gateway device are are probably not doing it because of the security features, even though those come with it. But they're doing it because of the uh, it's got six antennas instead of two, and it's got a really cool red shell, or or it's got all sorts of awesome Wi-Fi features and things like that. So they're they're spending money. Uh, on features that they want, getting the features they probably need uh, along with that for free, but not necessarily turning them on. Uh, um, the positive uh, uh, Trojan horse of security then give them the, <laughs> give them the fancy the fancy box, and uh, little do they know it's better to secure them. <laughs> yeah, attach it uh, attach it to features that they they want to pay for, and yeah, you can get good uptake there. Um, <laughs> You know, I think at, at an enterprise level, large or small, uh, there is so much variation across uh, across any industry or any sector um, that it's, it's really difficult, I think, to draw conclusions. Um, I don't think that there's really all that all that meaningful of a difference between sectors. Uh, I mean, I think inherently technology focused. Uh, areas like like telecommunications, uh, critical infrastructure, obviously has to be more aware of the technology and uh, you know do more uh, for security. But um, you know I think that that's that's just not universally true. And uh, you know there's also major differences across uh, across jurisdictions with let's say major legal differences. So um, you know there's there's very little to no liability for a consumer uh, for, you know, fraud or, or bank compromises or things like that in Canada, as I understand it. In the U.S., uh, that's quite different. And, uh, uh, you know, when I think you have different approaches to security in that sector accordingly, uh, it's kind of a, it's an unfair comparison because banks tend to be, uh, you know, much more numerous and smaller in the United States versus Canada, where we tend to have uh, a much more of a, a large consolidation uh, monopoly friendly I'm not using that in a judgmental way either but monopoly friendly kind of kind of set of industries where it's possible for a company to get larger and have fewer larger organizations which ultimately means they have more resources to throw at security uh, you know that said the quality of the team makes a huge difference um, and if you, you you have the support from the executive uh, in any organization and they, they get it and uh, are willing to fund uh, and support security initiatives, then you can see in incredible differences in maturity uh, in, in both large and small organizations. Yeah, so the awareness is key to, to making that shift, right? Uh, buy-in, yeah, the buy-in of the the key decision makers, the people who control the money and the uh, the resourcing. Uh, turns out that that's very important. Right. All right. Well, uh, appreciate your time today, Chris. Any any parting words? It, you know, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, you know, obviously, this is this is a, a topic of great passion for for both of us, and I think it's an important one for people to understand. And uh, you know, maybe parting wisdom if you can call it that uh you know be aware think critically um you know try to understand rather than assume uh remember that uh security isn't about technology security is about human adversaries in some form of conflict and uh technology constantly evolves and that's just the way that these conflicts are expressed right 
Great parting words. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Chris. Have a great day. Absolutely. You too. Thanks, Todd.